Welcome back to another episode of Pieces of Us. Now, usually, um, you know, the show is focused on personal stories, and we are going to kind of share a personal story, but we're going to focus on what's happening in the world right now with the pandemic, COVID-19, and I know it's kind of all we're going to talk about like all we've been talking about, but I think it is important to kind of get some facts. So I have invited a very special guest, Dr. Sarah Frazier. Um, she's currently working as a hospitalist. Uh, she's a family doctor who works with patients um, in patient care. She's a doctor in Canada and getting her master's in Miami in journalism with a focus in health. She usually travels back and forth between Canada and the U.S., but with the current time, she's now home. Um, mm-hmm. Are you in New Glasgow or Anaganish? Well, I'm going to be working in Anaganish, but right now I'm self-isolating in an apartment in Halifax, actually. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I You're also welcome. do want to point out she does have a great blog, and it's sarahfrasermd.com. Uh, fantastic, a lot of information. And it's honestly one of the main sources that I'm using to get current, concise, great information about what's happening. And so I've been kind of going between that and uh, CBC News for for my information. So thank you thank for joining you. us today and <laughs> spending some time with me. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, so as Sarah had mentioned, um, she has been in self-isolation because you were in Miami kind of when this broke out. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then you were coming home and you had to come home early because you knew you had to start work and you needed to be in that self-isolation for 14 days. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me um, what it's like? Because I've been practicing social distancing, but I can still get out. Like I can still go to the grocery store. So what mm-hmm. has it been like to be home for 14 days, like in your apartment? <laughs> to be honest, it's really, really hard. It's not fun because you, well, first of all, you can't go to the gym. Well, no one can do that. But, you know, there's also a lack of sunshine. But most of all, I'm missing human contact because I'm entirely alone. And and I just wrote a blog that I'm going to post a bit later today. But I talk about what it's like to be in self-isolation. And I find myself waiting by the window for the Uber Eats driver to come so I can just have a moment of smiling at another person and saying hello and thank you and to kind of have a mutual half smile and a recognition of what we're going through right now. So uh, it's, it's challenging. Um, I also find myself doing funny things. Yesterday, I, I started spending some time on TikTok. I've been watching more TikTok videos than usual, not that I usually watch it at all. So I've taken up watching TikTok videos, in fact. And there's one thing called the board in the house challenge where people are making up funny videos and dances to a song that this guy created that goes 
board and the house and I'm in the house board. So I made my own video to that, which I'm debating sharing on social media, but <laughs> these are the types of things I'm doing when really I, I want to get in there and be a doctor, actually. <laughs> right. It is so funny, the, the weird things that you kind of end up get caught up in just because you're just bored hanging out. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I know you talked about kind of that feeling, uh, the difficulty and you just wanting human contact and craving human contact. And I know I've been feeling like that as well. Um, and kind of, I guess, coming from an extrovert, like I get my energy from people. And even yesterday I went for a drive with my husband and even just the simple fact of like getting out and seeing people like revitalize me. Um, do, do you find like FaceTime, FaceTiming with friends and family helps or is it still kind of, there's that screen there that kind of still drains you. I see what you mean. I think it helps a lot. I mean, ideally, yes, it would be great to be seeing people in person, but it's it's just not possible. So I've actually found it really fun to, to use FaceTime. Like yesterday, my sister, Katie, who lives in Timmins and I did a workout through FaceTime and actually her kids were involved in dancing and doing jumping jacks. So, it, actually, I'm talking to Katie even more now now recently because she lives in on, Ontario and that's not where I live. So it, in some ways, we're communicating more than we normally would. So that's been good. So I think there are some benefits to it. Uh, it is it is challenging, though, to replace that, that in-person contact for sure. Yeah, and, and I think that it's so important to not just talk about like get on the phone or FaceTime like oh it's crazy and talk about exactly what's going on but to do an activity like you said like mm -hmm. out or I know um my brother and I we actually came up we kind of made our own it's crib but we're using two decks of cards and it's through FaceTime and oh, it just it nice. helps to do something other than sit and talk talk about it, it. it's kind of like head in the sand type of thing yeah exactly and I and I think that's been really important for me in self-isolation because it it's an obsession really and you can check the news 24 hours a day and I have had a couple of days like that where I just couldn't stop reading about well, how many cases do we have now what's the latest in Italy how is China doing what's going on in in my home province and it is important to take those breaks, I think. What strategies uh, would you have to kind of cope or help with that like mental health for people who are listening to this and they, they're kind of feeling the same, they're feeling that drain. Uh, what strategies would you have to help people cope with mental health issues during this time? So I've given this some thought actually, and I've broken it up into five categories. <laughs> so the first one, and I think this has been one of the most important ones for me is to structure your day. So when I get up in the morning, I write out the things that I want to accomplish, but also giving my time for those breaks that we were talking about and say from eight to nine, I'm going to work out. And from nine to 10, I'm going to do my writing. And then from 10 to 12, I'll be doing some reading, something that's not related. Then at 12, I watch the prime minister's message and, and check the news. And then you know, I give myself a couple hours later in the day to connect with friends and family. And, and so by starting out and planning the day, that really gives you a sense of control over what your day is going to be like. And if you get sucked into just constant worry or checking the news and um, thoughts like that, then it gives you something to turn to. Wait, this is the time that I'm supposed to be 
reading uh, or whatnot. Um, so that, that's the first category. Uh, self-care, just going back to the basics, drinking water, eating healthy, trying to get regular sleep, exercising, those are huge. Um, technology, so it can work in two ways, like we talked about. It can put you, it's necessary to put you in connection if you're in self-isolation with the people that you love. But also, I think it's really important to limit social media consumption and limit news consumption because it's really endless and it, it can take a toll on your mental health as well. Yeah, and actually, like what I had done, because I was getting stuck in that cycle of watching, you know, the, the news feed all day on my phone, checking different news sources and it, it had become too much for me and even Facebook. So I found, I deleted the Facebook app off my phone. Not that, mm. not saying that I'm not going to go back, but just mm-hmm. during this time, I, I couldn't handle it constantly coming in and then me getting sucked down that hole. Whereas mm-hmm. I found Instagram is, is different in that respect of people are more sharing their own photos instead mm-hmm. of articles. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I deleted Facebook and the, and I only have uh, the CBC news app and I don't even go on it because I get the notifications. So I get a headline, mm-hmm. I'll read mm-hmm. the headline. And if it's something major, like yesterday, the bill was passed for the emergency care mm-hmm. bill or the, mm-hmm. you know, the billions of dollars to help support what's happening. I decide, okay, I'm going to read that. Like, so I'm reading important, what I feel or what I'm deeming as, okay, this is something I should know about. And then I'm just ignoring a lot. And so it's that fine line of, for me, that's what's been helping me. I think that's really smart. And I think you have to, there's literally changes that are happening every day. There is a never ending stream of information coming through. There's just no way anyone can keep up with the pace of change and the amount of information that's out there. So you, you have to limit it in order to preserve your own sanity and to be a useful person in society right now, you, you need to take care of your mental health. So I think that's smart what you're doing. Uh, So I guess you were on number three for the different strategies for Yeah, so I've got structure, self-care, and technology. Those were sort of the first three. And the next two are, number one, ask for help. And then the last one is a sense of purpose. So for asking for help, I think this is the time when you really need to do it. If you have a network of support people in your life and you're in self-isolation, it's so much better if you can ask your friend to go to the grocery store for you and, and bring you things that you need at home. Or if you're someone who can do, you know, someone who's in self-isolation, like my friend the other day, she knew I was in self-isolation. She said, is there anything you need at the grocery store? And I was so thankful because it is, it is really hard to ask for, for help for a lot of us, um, especially if you're used to being really independent. So I, I think just asking for help like that and also professional help if you need it. I know, for example, for next week, I'm going into the COVID unit. Uh, in one of the Nova Scotia hospitals. So I know that that is likely going to be a tough thing to do. So last week, I actually booked a session with a counselor to make sure my mental health is prepared for what I'm what I'm going into. Um, you know, there's a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, but I've also read a concept called pre-traumatic stress disorder. And healthcare Uh, professionals are worried. We're worried we're not going to have enough personal protective equipment to protect us 
uh, to protect our health, like masks and gowns and, and, and things like that are running out of, um, there's a global shortage basically. Um, and obviously other, other concerns about the types of situations we'll, we'll face. So I wanted to get on top and kind of be preventative and proactive about, about my mental health. And if you already have, uh, you know, an anxiety disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder or panic disorder, those conditions can get exacerbated during pandemic times. So if you are feeling, if you are struggling, it is important. You can talk to your friends, you can talk to your family if that works for you. Or if you uh, want to reach out to someone in a professional in the mental health community like I did, I think that's a, another great thing that, that you can be doing. Yeah, I think that's so important to, especially in these times, because even people who I've even noticed myself obsessing more over, and it, it's not to the line of OCD, but you can kind of feel like that constant, mm-hmm. that constant worry, that constant anxiety. So I can only imagine um, for people who do suffer from anxiety, how that is elevated to an exponential degree. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that everyone is experiencing anxiety, unless you are a Zen Buddhist, and this does not phase you at all. I don't imagine how anyone would not be experiencing stress and anxiety right now. So I think this is a normal reaction to an unprecedented situation. Yeah, and I, and I think we all have to, yeah, be kind to ourselves in that feeling like, okay, it's okay to feel this. It's okay to feel stressed and worried and, you know, to go down that kind of rabbit hole. And when you catch yourself, just kind of take a step back and go, okay, Mm -hmm, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Can you share the final category, Sarah? Absolutely. So the final category is having a sense of purpose. So it's weird to think that inaction is a form of action, but by staying home and self-isolating, you are protecting those vulnerable people around you. You're protecting your grandmother who's older, so is more vulnerable to this disease. You are protecting people who are immunocompromised, your neighbor who has diabetes. So you are being a hero by staying home. And another way you can derive a sense of purpose is maybe do something that gives you that sense of purpose. Like if there was a a course you were always wanting to take or something that you can do at home that you'll find fulfilling and give you that sense of accomplishment. I think those things can really help in self-isolation. Yeah. And that, and that's, and sorry, I keep kind of relating back to me and, um, but, okay. but I guess that's what we can, we can only do right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, and it's funny, I, I did take a two, my intention was to take like a two week break. It was the end of February and it was going to go a little bit into March from my podcast and and then everything happened and then I slowly just kept putting things off and I kept like oh well I'm not like and and I don't know what it was if it was just a low or it was just difficulty and I stay home to do work I stay home to like I this is normal for me I guess in a sense but I found it so hard to like self-start and get things done and I don't I don't even have kids home to distract Mm -hmm. me and yet I, I was finding it difficult to like get into that routine. And then, and then finally it was like yesterday, I was like, let's break this. Like, let's, (laughs) let's try to get back into something and have a purpose and, and start kind of constructing my day. And and for me that helped, but do you have, sorry, do you have any strategies for people who, you know, this is kind of 
maybe more of a normal thing of working from home, but yet they're still finding it weird and difficult because of what's happening and what strategies maybe you have for them to kind of manage what's happening? Yeah. So you're saying people, for people who are already more so in a self-isolated world, but due to working at home anyway, but now sort of everyone else is working from home? I yeah. Mean, oh, that's an interesting question. I think the same things that we, we talked about would still apply, like um, giving having that structure to your day, self-care. Um, yeah, I think it would be sort of the same amount of things. I don't think I have any additional suggestions. Maybe if you're used to doing it, kind of sharing your tips and tricks with other people would would be a helpful thing to do. Yeah, that's kind, yeah. Of, kind of a hard question. And, and maybe give yourself some grace of, you know, not beating yourself up if if you're finding things are taking you longer during this yeah. time because there's more on your mind right now. Well, normal. yeah, exactly. I think I think even though your circumstances haven't changed and that you're working from you're still working from home, the whole world has completely changed. So I agree, it's normal to feel out of sorts and out of your normal routine, even if the day-to-day may not have changed that much, the whole world is changing. So I think that's good advice you gave to, to be kind to yourself and recognize that this is a crazy situation for everybody. Yeah, that, I, that's the one word that we're all using, right? <laughs> crazy. <laughs> crazy. Uh, for sure. You know, I loved how you said you talked about that inaction uh, is doing something, just the idea of staying home you know, working from home, limiting, um, you know, social interaction or limiting kind of even going to the grocery store and really practicing social distance. And there, there is, you know, a lot of people who have a terminally ill family member and they can't be that with them right now. And mm-hmm. it's difficult for them because um, there's somebody that I had talked to or had reached out to who, who was in this situation and they mm. said it's hard because their family member, they don't really know what's going on. And they're conf- the family member who's terminally ill is really confused about why people aren't coming to visit. And, you know, and then the person caring for that family member is kind of more left alone and like the responsibility is more on their shoulders. And so the people who can't go visit and who would normally be there to help support are now visiting and going to the window to say hi but not like going in and you know, it's, it's difficult times, but like how to manage both like helping vulnerable people uh, in a safe way, but also the mental health implications of the strain on families in these situations. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, I mean, that's, it's just such a tough situation. <sighs> I think um, when you can using things like like FaceTime to communicate as much as possible, but I mean, it becomes so difficult if the person who's ill isn't really understanding what's what's going on. Um, I think th- something that could help might be things like getting out an old photo album and showing the pic- that person pictures of family. I think I think that might be a good way to bring back memories, but. Um, Gosh, this is a really tough question. I don't, I don't, I'm afraid I don't have a great answer for. Yeah, and that's, and I mean, there's, there's so many situations that are, are so difficult for so many people. And well, yeah, I mean, the hospitals even have uh, no visitation rule, uh, except for potentially in special circumstances. Um, there may be one visitor permitted, but would have to wear 
potentially all of the gear. So it's a very, it's a very strange and weird situation. And there, there are so many things that are happening right now that are different from what anything we've experienced before. It's, it's kind of a new normal right now, but hopefully we get, we get through things, this and things go back to somewhat, uh, to somewhat normal soon, but it's challenging. Is there anything else, you know, you say the best thing is the inaction, but sometimes it feels like, hey, what else can we do? Is there anything else we can do? Like, is there any donations or um, any organizations that we could be donating money? Or like, what if, you know, I read an article about a doctor reaching out to construction companies asking, like, if you guys have any masks, can you donate them to the hospital? Like, is there anything else we can do as citizens if staying at home is the best thing we can do? And that's the number one thing. But if somebody feels compelled and they just, they want to do something else, do you have any advice mm-hmm. for someone? Well, there are some groups that are popping up and they're called caremongering groups. I'm not sure if you heard of them, but basically it's citizens who got together on Facebook. As we're talking about social media, it can be draining at times, but it can also be used for good. So, for example, in that Facebook group, they're talking, they help identify needs within certain communities and say there's an elderly person who can't get out of their house and they need food. Then you can say, oh, here are some people who can help bring that person food. Um, Regarding the mask issue, for the general public, wearing a mask, if you're not sick and you're healthy and you're walking down the street to go get your groceries, Wearing a mask does not help prevent you from getting sick. Um, It might even increase the risk of getting sick because you might be touching your face more and adjusting it. And if you wear it multiple times, that's also not good. So I think recognizing that and not buying masks for yourself and saving it for the healthcare workers who really are at risk from getting this by being in close contact with people is, uh, is something that you can do. Uh, so I, I read in your in your blog just about um, the virus staying on surfaces, and there was an article out even um, one of the cruise ships, 17 days after everybody uh, left the cruise ship, there was still traces of virus on surfaces. So mm-hmm. that has, has me, you know, you're, I'm concerned and you're like spraying down things and, and trying to sanitize things. Should we be sanitizing things as they come into our home? Uh, when we go grocery shopping, we have the cans and we have boxes and should we be sanitized? Like, I, and I know it seems extreme, but it's, it's also, uh, you know, there, it's kind of the times we are in right now. I know it is. I think we should. I, like you said, I know it seems extreme. Um, so the studies that have been done recently, so in February of this year, one study looked at how other types of coronaviruses attach to surfaces. So the coronavirus, we're calling it the coronavirus, but there's actually a bunch of different coronaviruses. Some cause the common cold. Um, some, a coronavirus was the virus that caused SARS as well. But for this, uh, so a study looked at different other types of coronaviruses and found that they could stay attached to surfaces up to nine days, especially plastic and metal. And another study was done in March of this year that showed the coronavirus, this new coronavirus, COVID, the one that causes COVID-19, can stay attached to plastic or metal for two or three days. And I, I did see that come out about the 
viral material that was present on surfaces of a cruise ship for up to 17 days. So whether that genetic material would actively pass on an infection at that point, I'm not 100% sure. It wasn't, I, I just haven't, that just wasn't clear to me from the, the article that I read. But still, we don't know a lot about this virus. So I think if there's anything you can do that is cautious, that could help prevent you from getting an infection, why not do it? Like when I get Uber Eats delivered, well, they leave it outside and that's great. But then I go and pick it up and I try not to touch the the plastic. Like I'll have a piece of paper towel in my hand, bring it in, like tear the, the outer packaging off carefully, throw that in the garbage. Then I wash my hands and then I like open the food itself and scoop it into my own plate. Then I put that stuff in the garbage and then I wash my hands again and then I eat and then I wash my hands again. So I, I usually don't do all that stuff. <laughs> but if you are buying apples and then I think it makes sense to take them and, and, uh, and wash them off. Uh, I mean, apples are something you would normally wash anyway, but even something like uh, metal. So if we know that someone, if we know that the virus can survive on metal for a few days. And if someone happened to cough when they were walking down the grocery aisle and a piece of that cough landed on the, the metal, um, then it's possible that that could give you infection. Now that would be much more, or sorry, less likely than actually being within two meters of someone who's talking and some of that, those droplets go potentially onto your face which is why we want to stay two meters apart from each other. Or you're walking down the aisle and someone sneezes, and even if they try to cover it that, and you're really close to them, you could get the infection. So I think those things are potentially more important to do and just that it would be more risky to get an infection from somebody who's really close to you sneezing. But at the same time, we know asymptomatic people can pass on this disease. There have been reports of that. And um, we know that it can survive on surfaces. So. Uh, because there's just so much that we don't know, I think we need to take every precaution that we possibly can. You you had talked about, you know, there there's the co- like coronavirus and then there's mm-hmm. other coronaviruses and similar to SARS. Can you talk about like, how is this coronavirus different than that of SARS? Um, how is this coronavirus different than like the common flu. And I know, I guess from, you know, just a general everyday person, I can see, I can see it's different. I understand Mm -hmm. it's different and it seems to be more contagious, but I guess from a medical standpoint, um, what do you know about it and like how, yeah, how is it different? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. So like I said, the corona, there are different types of coronaviruses. So there's some cause the common cold. So the difference between this coronavirus and the coronavirus that causes the common cold is that this one causes much more serious infections and it's much more deadly. So when we compare it to SARS, which is another type of coronavirus, the mortality rate or the case fatality rate with SARS was actually, it actually was higher. So more people would die from SARS but way more people have this. So when I say more people would die from SARS, the the case fatality rate for SARS was 10%. So if you get SARS, which is the coronavirus infection that happened mainly in 2002, your chances of dying were one in 10. So that's pretty high. 
But with this coronavirus or the virus that causes COVID-19, we're still not exactly sure what the case fatality rate is, but it's not 10%. When you look at the overall numbers in Italy, it looks like it's like it's a, a 10%, but it's probably not capturing the full range of people who have the infection because the people who are getting tested are more likely the ones who are, are more sick. So there's probably a lot of people who are getting tested or who are not getting tested, who had a mild cold and stayed at home. And, and the majority of the time, if you get COVID-19, it is considered a mild infection. But because it's spreading so quickly, that is the reason why we see the number of people dying is increasing. So it because it's it's spreading so quickly. So that's a big difference between you mentioned coronavirus and how does it compare to the flu or influenza, which is the the flu is what you get your flu shot for every year. Um, and that has to do with this number called or not. I'm going to get all nerdy here for a second, okay? I love it. So, I love it. Get nerdy. It? <laughs> yeah. Okay, get nerdy. So, R not refers to how contagious a virus is. It, it's basically an R with a little subscript O below it, but R N A U G H T. So, it's a number that is used to refer to how contagious a virus is. And the when you look at the R not of influenza, it's 1. So if one person gets the flu, how many people are they likely to spread it to? One. And how many people will they spread it to? One. And we, ideally, we want it less than one. So hopefully with flu vaccines and more people getting them, we will get that number of the flu to be even less than one. With COVID-19, because it's so new, again, we don't quite know exactly what it is. I've read some people say it's 1.5. Some people say it's two. Some people say it's three. Some people say it's four. Three is a number I've sort of commonly read. So in other words, if you get the virus of COVID-19, uh, it's the virus is actually called SARS, SARS-CoV-2, but the disease is COVID-19. So if you get COVID-19, on average, you are likely, if we go with the R-naught of three, which is sort of in the middle estimate, you are likely to pass it on to three people. But then those three people pass it on to another three people. And then, uh, so then you've got nine. And so then each of those nine people pass it on to three more people. So that's 27. And then each of those 27 people pass it on to three more people. Um, this, but this virus is just really good at getting into the lungs and, and causing the infection. You can see that that growth is exponential. And so that's one of the, reasons that COVID-19 is causing this big pandemic. It's so good at being spread, I guess you could say. It's it's really contagious. And, and I know with like normal flu seasons, you get, if if you happen to get the flu, you're not going to get that strain of flu again because you've built up immunity to fight it off. Yes? Uh, yeah, I think normally with, with most infections, that is how, how it works. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question is with COVID-19, uh, is there any research done? And I guess maybe it's new, so we don't know that if you do have COVID-19, is it possible to get it again? I think we don't, we don't know for sure. Um, but normally with, with most infections, if you get an infection caused by a virus or bacteria, your body will amount, um, produce antibodies 
so that the next time you're exposed to that virus, your body will send these antibodies and fight that infection because it's seen it before, it knows what to do. But those, I guess one point is that those antibodies don't necessarily last forever, which is why you need to get boosters of some shots. You need to get, you know, your kids need to get their measles booster and then you need to get your tetanus booster. You might've had that experience if you, if you go into uh, the hospital after you've cut yourself, the doctors might give you a a booster for your tetanus vaccine. And that's because it only, those vaccines only protect you for so many years. And it's possible that, and they're doing studies now checking, checking people's blood for, to see if they've developed antibodies. Like like you said, it's all very new, but um, it is, it is likely that if you get an infection that you will mount an immune response to it and not get it again. But we just can't say that for sure. So I don't know if compared to the flu, if there's any differences there. Um, I just can't say. But I do know one thing I didn't mention before is also the case fatality rate. And so when you compare it to the flu, this is, this is much more deadly than the flu. So again, so hard to know the numbers, but we know that the flu case fatality rate is one in a thousand. And this is looking more like one in a hundred. Again, there's many different estimates. I've seen anywhere from 0.6%, which I think is probably more accurate. Um, that's numbers kind of coming out of South Korea where they've been able to do widespread testing. Then some other numbers are 1%, 2%, 3%. But again, when you look at those raw numbers, you'll see, well, seven in Italy, I don't know what the numbers are up to now, 70,000 say people have it. And 7,000 people died from it. That looks like 10% mortality. So it, it is, this is at least six times more deadly than the flu, I would say. Yeah. And, and, and two, we're trying to keep those numbers extremely low by, you know, the social distancing and self-isolation and, you know, restrictions, mm-hmm. flight restrictions and travel restrictions, um, mm-hmm. because we have seen kind of in China and Italy, the mm-hmm. and then they took steps to mitigate kind of some of the issues. So I guess it's kind of interesting because it's like, without any of this, we may never know the true numbers and hopefully we'll be able to flatten that curve and come mm-hmm. you know, be able to eradicate it before, before mm-hmm. it becomes a horrible statistic exactly so i i have read about um like an oral like they've been talking about like an oral treatment mm-hmm. H- have you read about like with this oral treatment is it more for the symptoms is it to replace the vaccine or is it just we're kind of shooting at random things just seeing let's see what works <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good question because you hear a lot about this in the in the media and if you listen to Donald Trump talk about it, I mean, he, you've got his infectious disease specialist standing behind, behind him. Say, and when he grabs the mic, he's saying, we don't have evidence that this work yet, works yet. And then Donald Trump says, well, we're hopeful, I'm paraphrasing, but we're hopeful that this is going to work. Well, we can be hopeful that it's going to work. But the truth is that we don't know yet if it works. So the treatments that you're referring to are Um, a medication that's used to treat malaria called hydroxychloroquine. And then there are other antivirus HIV medications that that people think might work for this coronavirus because they've been used in in other situations to treat other types of viruses or infections. But 
we don't have the studies yet. There have been case reports. So there have been some studies where people have tried this who have had COVID-19 and then they got better. Um, but without uh, what's called a randomized control trial, which is the gold standard for any type of research and science. So in other words, a randomized control trial is when you give half the people the medication and half the people get a placebo or basically like a sugar pill. And you actually do a study to see if these gets better because the, the malaria medication, for example, it's not particularly benign. It can, it can elongate something called the QT, which can cause heart problems. It can cause your, your heart beats to kind of have a long space between each other. And, and so, um, there's actually, I, I can only speak in Nova Scotia, but we, we are not permitted to prescribe any of those medications. And in fact, those medications are on shortage and the people who have HIV need these medicines to, to suppress their viral loads for that disease. It's true that these medications, once, maybe once we do a study that will say, oh, wow, this medication was actually effective and we can use it. But in medicine, unless it's part of a randomized clinical control trial, I really don't think we should just be blindly saying, well, let's try this and see if it works. Although we may want to do that and it may make sense on some level to do that. It's also has its own risks. Like people can get side effects from these medications. Other people who need them for conditions that we know they work to treat won't be getting them. So unless it's part of a study, in my opinion, it's not right to just give these medications as a let's hope they work type scenario. And is there, is there hope of a vaccine possibly coming soon? Like it usually takes a long time to mm-hmm. develop a vaccine. And, and again, um, they would, the vaccine would have to go through testing. And so do you know, like how long it takes in an average situation uh, to develop a vaccine? Uh, I don't know about average. I have done some reading about this particular situation. I've heard a year, I've heard 18 months. I'm, I'm hoping that a year would be more likely. A vaccine is really going to be one of the big answers to solving this this problem um, but it takes time I mean I heard recently there were there were people who had volunteered for the first to to actually be vaccinated with a with a sort of a prototype vaccine the first part of a trial um, so it's, it's underway but it I would be surprised if anything happened in less than a year and and so I guess when you say that it's it's in a sense are we going to be doing this for a year I mean, an entire. Don't you love like, these questions of like? I know, give us like, the answer, Sarah. Future, future crystal ball. Uh, I, I, I mean, the other thing that is helpful is that we talked a little bit about immunity, and although we can't say for sure, if we look at other infections, people who get them become immune, and as more people hopefully are becoming immune after getting this then they will be less likely to get the infection again. So they will be less likely to pass the infection on again. And we are seeing uh, things slowing down drastically in, in places like China. And, uh, and so, I mean, I don't and, know if we'd be and, doing and this again, right. like, I, I And I don't want people listening to this and be like, well, then it just makes sense for me to 
go and get the infection and then build no, up that that's a very like yeah that's a very good point because they tried that in the uk because initially in the uk um their thought was oh well the top virologist was kind of saying um we why not get everybody like they used to have chicken pox parties for example back in the day and get everybody sick all at once and then and then people are immune but the problem is if we do that in right now and the uk has since changed their opinion on this and they have since put in very strict social isolation or physical distancing and self-isolation policies and such um but if we did that now then we would completely overwhelm the healthcare system so if if you if someone's like well i just want to get it over with and get out get out and get sick well you get sick and then you pass it to the people in your household or you pass it to someone you interact with at the grocery store then like i said that are not that number you getting one person sick could mean getting actually so many people sick and then when i go to job go to do my job next week at the hospital instead of having uh, 15 patients with covid-19 i have 30 patients with covid-19 just as an example and then I'm going to get burnt out easier. I'm going to get sick easier. Then I'm going to have to go in self-isolation for another two weeks. And then I'm basically going to have to create another board in the house video when I should really be treating patients who have COVID-19. And I really don't, I mean, it was fun to do. I liked making that video, but I don't want to make another video. So please don't make me make another video. That's not your life purpose. You're it's not my life purpose. <laughs> but you don't want to become TikTok famous? <laughs> uh, it's not within my five-year plan. <laughs> okay, okay. And I think I'll be deaf. I'm already too old for TikTok, but in after five years, I'll definitely be way too old for TikTok. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, is our healthcare system... Okay, I guess I, I, it's kind of like a two-folded question because is our healthcare um system more prepared than other countries or have we been able to hopefully get ahead of it a little bit so we're not experiencing what other countries are and then at this on top of all of that just you're gonna have to compartmentalize all these questions you know when you read in nova scotia and across the country you know healthcare professionals are saying before this even happened we're facing a healthcare shortage or a crisis, um, you know, and in Nova Scotia, our hospitals kind of were kind of at the breaking point. And that was a big political talking point. We're worried about that. So I guess all of those questions in one, you know, is our healthcare <laughs> system more prepared than others? Have we got ahead of this? And how is our current, uh, and maybe you can only speak specifically to Nova Scotia, how are we going to be able to manage this? Because we were kind of already in a crisis as before this happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if you compare it to other healthcare systems in the world, I mean, I, I think Canada is not number one, but we're not the worst either. Like we have, we have a good healthcare system. I think our universal healthcare system is a bonus in this case to allow for that coordinated approach and people have free access to medical care. So I think those are positive things. I know that as of yesterday, uh, there were 700 cases of COVID-19 in South Africa. And I like, do worry quite a bit about the continent of Africa and how this disease um, will affect Africa. That's, that is very concerning to me. 
I know we were we were ahead of the game in terms of testing. So when you compare the number of tests uh, that Canada is doing compared to the United States, as of a couple of days ago, we had actually done more tests in the United States, and that's not per capita. So even though our population is ten times as small, we had tested more people. So we know that testing is very key to uh, preventing this disease from spreading. The countries who have done extensive testing have have really seen some some positive things come out of that. Um, so Germany and South Korea, and so I think that's a, a something that that Canada has going for it. In Nova Scotia, they recently doubled the testing capacity, and they're now able to analyze the tests right here in Nova Scotia instead of sending them away. So I think that'll help. And I think it's important to know that that public health, it's not like they just realized this was happening two weeks ago when it sort of became a big deal. They've been monitoring people coming in from China since January um, and then Iran when it started to take off in Iran. So this is something that people have been preparing for for months now really um so it it's not like it's it's coming as a very fresh surprise to the people in the in the government and public health who are in charge um but then when you look at what the site i frequently refer to is the johns hopkins interactive map and i'm not sure if you're familiar with that one but it's really it's a really good and accurate update of the number of covid 19 cases in the world it breaks down by country. It tells you the number of deaths. So when you look at that map, Canada has, there basically there are 13 or 14 countries that, are, that have more cases than Canada does right now. So, so we, do, we do have quite a bit of cases. We seem to have fewer deaths, proportionally speaking, than some other countries. But um, there's reason for concern, but there's reason, reason for hope. I know that's kind of a, a vague, a vague answer. I feel hopeful. I'm hoping that these social distancing and, and isolation measure, measures will work to flatten the curve, but but it's going to um, it's going to going to get worse before it gets better, in my opinion. Yeah, and I guess that you know it's not to say like, hey, everything will be okay, but to mm-hmm. shed some light on our healthcare system had prepared, had looked at this had Mm -hmm. doing a lot and you know hopefully we can have and that and we don't want to strain our healthcare system so to continue to self um social distance and self-isolate um but at the same time we kind of we can be proud of our healthcare system in Mm -hmm. kind of leading its in its own way of being able to you know test more people and that Mm -hmm. we have healthcare that if anybody gets sick it's you're not turned away so mm-hmm, absolutely and in um when the doctors and the the government officials and the politicians that i am in contact with are literally working around the clock on this it just it doesn't stop and people care and people are coming together like i've never seen before in healthcare there's advances being made at a, such a rapid pace with telemedicine and with coordinating medical care so i I think people can um, rest assured but that, that there's a whole lot of people who are working extremely hard on this um, that I've seen firsthand. I know the infectious diseases doctors we have here in Nova Scotia are extremely intelligent, caring individuals 
Um, and then also just the community support that I'm seeing is a huge strength uh, as well. And, and that goes a long way too. So I guess the, there's a wide variety of symptoms that are happening or arrive, like the, there's a variety of the severity, as you had mentioned earlier of, you know, there's people who are asymptomatic um, who are spreading it. And then there's people who are really sick. Is that, is it kind of more of the like older population, um, the at-risk population, uh, previous healthcare or like previous health risks that are at factor here? Like, why are we seeing such a wide severity in, in the symptoms? Um, so even with influenza, some people get a more mild case, but, but usually people who are elderly or immunocompromised have those more severe symptoms. So in general, we are seeing that the people who are normal, the majority of the people who are getting complications from this are older individuals, are people who are immunosuppressed, who don't have the immune system to fight this off. So people with conditions like cancer or diabetes, or sometimes people need to be on medications that suppress their immune system. Um, So like certain types of arthritis require those types of medications. So those are the people who are getting affected the worst. At the same time, like things are changing every day and you are starting to hear a lot more younger people actually needing ICU treatment, needing ventilators, so breathing machines to keep them alive. And um, there are even deaths in, in some younger people that, that uh, aren't making sense with what we previously thought about this. I do think that people who are older individuals or who are immunocompromised are more vulnerable to, to this disease and people who are younger and healthy um, are generally not as vulnerable to its effects. So there's, they can still get it, but they're not having um, severe effects from it. But at the same time, there are cases where younger people are, are um, succumbing to this disease. And is there any research on if somebody, and I know it's different, but if somebody got the flu vaccine or has uh, an ammonia vaccine that they are less likely to get sick or is it completely different? I've been asked this question a couple of times and no. So I, I read this on the World Health Organization website just yesterday, actually. If you get the pneumonia vaccine, it does not protect you from COVID-19. There's no there's no research that supports that, but getting your flu shot and getting your pneumonia vaccine are still helpful because sometimes, I mean, in the past, I've treated someone in the hospital who has the flu, and then they get a pneumonia on top of the flu. That that can happen where you can kind of get this double infection. And so, if you get COVID nineteen, Imagine if you also got influenza at the same time. Imagine if you got pneumonia at the same time. So if you can reduce your chance of getting pneumonia by getting the pneumonia vaccine, or if you can reduce your chance of getting the flu by getting the flu shot, then those are still going to protect you from getting those diseases. If you happen to get COVID-19 and you're preventing yourself from getting these other infections, that could be a benefit fit to your health. But I don't think there's any proof that that getting these shots protects you from COVID-19 because it's a different type of bacteria and, or sorry, virus in, in the case of pneumonia bacteria. Right. It could just help you even getting sicker on top of 
it potentially, have, potentially yeah it could it could help you from getting the flu or getting pneumonia and if you already have COVID-19 you don't want those things so it, it's I would still highly recommend getting those vaccines all right um do you have any final thoughts or anything you would like to say to listeners um kind of during these unprecedented times i think that one positive thing from all of this is that i'm seeing the global community come together like never before and it really gives me so much joy and also hope to see how the whole world despite our differences can support one another and even on the micro level to see in the hospital all of the doctors and work nurses working together for this specific cause and the level of community support and people staying at home i i think that has been a real beautiful thing to watch about humanity despite the crisis so i i there's just so say, much think, good yeah there yeah there is there is good in, in this chaos um and and i think that's something that we can focus on and take comfort in yeah and even just even saying that the community i mean i'm in in toronto and we don't know anybody and and we're getting emails from our apartment our condo building and you know they said people had reached out and, and if you need anything or need extra support and you don't know anybody in the city um reach out to management because there's people within the building that are willing to help to go get groceries or whatever and it just you know it's mm -hmm. sometimes in a city where you can feel so alone it felt like there are so many people want to help and so many people want to reach out so mm -hmm. i guess as That's mr amazing. roger said you know always look for the helpers in uh, bad news stories or at, in troubling times because there's people there, there's people helping, there's people, you know, working hard and supporting others. So mm -hmm. I think that's wonderful. Uh, so Sarah, I, I just want to ask, um, you know, your blog has, is amazing uh, at sarahfrasermd.com. Um, how else can people uh, find you or access information and stay in contact? So I'm on various social media sites and my name is the same on all of them, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I seem to be more active on Instagram lately. So the handle is at Sarah Fraser MD. Perfect. And I'll make sure I'll put that on my website so people will be able to access that. Um, thank you so much, Sarah, for um, taking the time to kind of dispel some of the misconceptions and kind of clarifying a few things because I know in this in this world it's it's hard to get some of the information so i really appreciate it and i know listeners will appreciate it as well thank you so much sarah you're and, welcome <laughs> and this has been pieces of us with katherine paquette thank you for tuning in don't forget to join me on instagram to stay up to date on most recent episodes you can catch me at at pieces of us show thank you so much for listening Stories of yours, stories of men, all we have to share is time and pieces of us, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us, pieces of you, pieces of me, pieces of us.